Today on Against the Grain. 20 years ago, this program came on air for the first time in the midst of turmoil, protest, and impending war. In the second half of a two-part retrospective, historian Ian Bowl joins me to discuss the context out of which Against the Grain emerged from the media reform, global justice, and anti-war movements at the turn of the new century to the program's deeper roots in West Coast radicalism and radio. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. On 030303, Against the Grain came onto the air for the first time, two and a half weeks before the United States invaded Iraq. With the mission of challenging conventional wisdom on the left, C.S. Song and I set about questioning established ideas at a time of renewed protest, organizing, and hope that another world was possible. To reflect on that period in which Against the Grain was launched, I recently sat down with Ian Bowl to talk about the program's origins and to have him place the program in a larger context, including that of KPFA, the mother of public radio stations in the United States, which was founded by radicals in 1949. He's a historian of Technics and the Commons and a scholar of KPFA and Pacifica Radio. I should mention that he's been published by PM Press and disclose my connection to that publisher. Here's our conversation. I wanted to begin by talking about the broad conjuncture and context in which Against the Grain came out. You know, this period of the early 2000s, which I would say to be seen really has to extend back into the late 90s, which was actually a kind of remarkable moment. I mean, there was great turbulence in the global economy, heightening financial crises, but there was also, you know, in a time of prosperity, relatively speaking, you know, not a time of recession and that kind of crisis, there was an upsurge on the left and all of this organizing around and through the global justice movement, obviously culminating in the Battle of Seattle in 1999. And so there was this whole surge and I think a whole lot of people brought into left politics during that time. And then simultaneously, and connected, of course, to the rise of the global justice movement, was an upsurge in alternative media. Uh, there was Democracy Now! came online in the late 90s, and then Indie Media. And, of course, there was also a lot of turbulence in the media system. And, and of course, I should say the crisis of KPFA in Pacifica in 1999. But you were a close follower and, in effect, participant in much of that. And I wonder if you could remind us what was going on in the late 90s around media, both from on high and then the emergence of renewed or robust alternative media. Yes, Sasha. Well, a key date, you already mentioned 1996, a key date for those of us uh, following and and participating um, around the question of of public media. Got to remember that uh, neoliberal ideology was... um, you know, it, it goes back a long way, Hayek, and I don't know, but you can talk about a deeper history. But remember that 1996 was the the Telecommunications Act of 1996 was the first major adjustment to policy around the, uh, the airwaves since uh, 1934, actually. And that alerted a lot of people who were... Um, particularly exercised by the question of, uh, in the phrase, net, net neutrality. So, in other words, the, the, the age of the internet uh, had, had begun. And the question was very parallel to those interested in, in a deeper history, to the struggle over, for example, um, fixed pricing nationally for... Uh, electricity or postage you know w- were rural people to be disadvantaged because it they, they were because they were remote um, I got involved in fact for the only time 
um, I've actually been in the in sort of smoke smoke filled rooms, as it were, in Washington, was around the 1996 Telecommunications Act, and the struggle, which was obvious to many then, against the privatization of the electromagnetic electromagnetic spectrum. It was it was clear to many that there was going to be a plunder of the of the airwaves, if. Resi successful resistance wasn't mounted to the privatization. And I think it's fair to say that the crisis uh, of, of uh, Pacifica in 99 was all part of that, as you rightly say, this historical moment. The Battle of Seattle focused indeed on new uh, trade arrangements. It was no accident that Clinton had chosen Seattle as his, as the sort of the poster city uh, for neoliberal capitalism, um, home as it was to to Boeing and and to Microsoft, uh, not to mention Starbucks, coffee. And so, in 1996, I went at the invitation of the Benton Foundation, who who had interesting, you know, liberal. Um, policy recommendations to, to try to preserve um, net, net neutrality. That Telecommunications Act, uh, the result of that was the commodification of the airwaves that led directly, I would say, to the crisis uh, of, of uh, 1999 and 2000. The, what was so interesting in Seattle was that there was you know, this large space in which people came together in a, in a physical space and the burst of uh, indie media uh, following Seattle was very striking. I, I for example, became involved uh, in a rather humorous way in, um, with Ali Tonak uh, in the local indie media production, which was a physical newspaper uh, at the time, it was still. Th it was interesting that there were still physical newspapers uh, at that time. The um, Bay Area Indie Media produced this this newspaper, and um, Ali and I we composed a crossword for radicals um, that was themed uh, each each time. In fact, we were th there were complaints that we we were making it we were distracting comrades from the struggle. By, by getting them to um, to spend too much time uh, uh, on the crossword. But seriously, um, the, the Telecommunications Act was this, I think, key moment in, in relation to, to radio, for sure. So this, there was this moment, and as you say, in 1999, a crisis came to a head at KPFA and at Pacifica, uh, which spread enormously beyond the immediate bounds of those involved in media production at KPFA and in the network and became a sort of cause celeb, an international cause. It's something that Pacifica historian Matthew Lazar has written about, uh, led to, of course, 15,000 people protesting in the streets of Berkeley, but also international solidarity from around the world. And Matthew Lazar argues that in many ways, the crisis at Pacifica came at a moment where there was a heightened awareness about the importance of media. And I would say intersecting also with an upsurge of social movements, you know, as people think about these things, historians or scholars of social movements, it would be argued, I think, uh, undoubtedly, that this was a top of a movement cycle, right, of social movements that they ebb and flow. And this was a period in which there was a surge of social movements and interest on the left. Well, I completely agree with that. There's an interesting oscillation um, about how to think about globalization um, what was the resistance to that were you going to call it ultra globalization we're not against globalization what the the, the imaginary the, the planetary imaginary um, 
is a very interesting question. The globe itself is is an icon, is an emblem that goes back uh, deep into to the Middle Ages, for heaven's sake. It becomes a, the globe becomes a, a an emblem of, of of sovereignty and of you know reach, and I suppose the left was somewhat s split about how to think about um, the struggle, whether, w how seriously to take the boundaries. Obviously, the, the events in Genoa, there was a tremendous reaction by the authorities, brutal reaction by the authorities in Genoa. So that, and the question of how, how to communicate resistance under what, through, through which media and, and under what terms is, front and center at the moment of the millennium. I think, I think that's right, looking back now. Indie media, which ended up disintegrating ultimately, played a very interesting role in all of this. And one thinks of the idea of the cunning of history, how things turned out, but you know, pioneering this interactive way for people to engage with media and make media and react to media that you, know, you can then see as sort of a springboard for many corporate websites to come, but pioneered in some ways by indie media. Yeah, that's right. That's the cunning of history. And it probably happens with every, you know, technical innovation. Um, KPFA uh, Pacifica was a pioneer of the, of the use of telephony as a way to connect interactively with, with, the, with the audience. I mean, it's it's probably uh, not surprising that you know we tend to look at history backwards, and it's a bit unfortunate. But what does it look like going forwards? What was the what was felt to be at stake when Jane White and others chained themselves uh, to the doors of the of the Pacifica, you know, headquarters in Berkeley uh, in 1999? What what was it that they were defending and that's a question that's urgent right now Pacifica whose whose visionary founders um, had a very different we're in a very different uh, landscape mediascape it was precisely the uh, the anarcho-syndicalists and war resistors and bohemians uh, conscience objectors who were very aware they took seriously and certainly Lewis Hill did took seriously the limits uh, of the, the letterpress uh, of gestetnered uh, leaflets and pamphlets and heard Dwight MacDonald when he said, you know, you have to have mass effects, which is why they applied for uh, an amplitude um, modulation, an, 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 a, an AM uh, piece of the, uh, of the spectrum. Now, there were those who resisted uh, that move uh, to become part of the licensed media. You know, be careful, it'll come back to bite you. That was one of the, the Trieste brothers said, you know, that was the kind of the anarchist position. If you go for state approved uh, license, you better watch out. And uh, that one could say has proved a powerfully you know, prescient comment. But they went ahead anyway, and although they were not allowed, they were not given um, a, an AM license, which would have allowed them to reach the the working class in, say, the do the Docklands, uh, in uh, the naval base in Oakland, and the the Docklands in in Richmond, they were they were given an FM signal, which is line of sight, and because there were very few receivers, I guess it was thought that this uh, nothing much was at stake by those who who had the power to grant these licenses and i should say that i'm speaking with ian bull he's a historian of techniques and the radio co-author of retorts afflicted powers i'm sasha lily this is against the grain and we're celebrating against the grain's 20th anniversary with a conversation about the moment out of which this program came and the lineages that 
fed into it. And I'm Sasha Lilly. Ian, we will return to precisely what you were just talking about, which is the founding of KPFA in the late 1940s out of a very different political conjecture, and yet one that also has some commonalities in that the people who founded KPFA were very concerned about how easy it was to mobilize the public to support war. And Against the Grain came on air three weeks before the U.S. invaded Iraq, but there was a, a long lead up to that invasion and was shaped by and shaped the movements that we've just been describing that preceded that moment following September 11th. So, you know, on the one hand, you had the upsurge of the global justice movement, you had all of this kind of more intense interest in media and alternative media, a kind of shift in a focus on the global system as a whole in the global justice movement, some people pointing to corporate dominance and others to capitalism, but all of these were at play. And then following September 11th, or I should say, even leading up to September 11th, there was sort of the, the quashing of the global justice movement. You know, you mentioned Genoa, and there was, of course, someone killed, an Italian protester killed in Genoa. And then you had September 11th. And at that point, you know, this very chilling effect that came from that moment. And yet, in spite of all of that, the building of an anti-war movement that in many ways sort of built itself, that is, there was such horror and revulsion from a, a large swath of the public, even though following September 11th, the quashing of dissent and the fear, and especially people from the Middle East or Middle Eastern descent or as people who are Muslim, you know, there was a, a great sense of fear, and rightly so, because people were being rounded up and deported. And yet this movement against the impending war built and gathered momentum so that before the U.S. invaded Iraq, of course, you know, there was the famous statement in the New York Times that there are two superpowers in the world, the U.S. state and the anti-war movement, which was extensive globally, but including in the United States. Yeah, I, you know, Afflicted Powers, um, as a book that was published uh, by Verso eventually, came out of uh, the two great uh, marches in February, on February and March the 15th, uh, which we're commemorating. That was astonishing, because at the very moment, I mean, this is the first time in, in history uh, when the resistance um, to the warmongering of the state and the moment when patrioteering and attack dog aggressivity, you know, has its, has its finest hour, that, you know, many millions um, as the sun went west around the globe, many, many millions came out into the streets. Um, so large in Sydney was the, was the crowd that the the route of the the march was misjudged. People were still trying to enter as the front of it, you know, circled back around to to the to the gathering point. I mean, it was it was a fantastic and unexpected thing where people could see that this was uh, something remarkable and that there's there's something about being in the presence of these very large crowds which Im embody. Uh, a community, if one can use that word without uh, irony, um, the the state, the licensed media, the things that were the anti-war movement knew very well that the things that were uh, NPR, PBS compliant was in, in increasingly constricted. So the radical media seemed all the more important uh, at this point. We produced a, uh, a broadside called Neither Their War Nor Their Peace because we knew that the licensed media would in general be telling uh, lies about the numbers and so on. These become rather important. Uh, so I'm struck now looking back 
wondering what it was that was in in your mind when you decided you know what what were the immediate impulses if you can remember uh, as you as you began this uh, what's for 20 years now been a really tremendous beacon in in a dark media scape the way against the grain came onto the air was rather circuitous and unexpected i met cs in 1999 when he worked at kpfa and then kpfa was a few months later thrown into crisis and doors were locked and armed guards were put in the station but he and i stayed in touch and he ended up leaving kpfa to go to work for working assets radio on KLW, which was at the time hosted by Laura Flanders. So he and I had lunch one day, and I think I was railing about the frustration I had with the state of the left at that time, because although, of course, there was such an upsurge in the global justice movement, the media reform movement, and then the anti-war movement. So on the one hand, there was the upsurge of all of these different movements, but I, I felt frustrated because it seemed like there was an often an uncritical aspect to the global justice movement and these other movements in that there was a, there's a longer strain of anti-intellectualism that I think runs through the U.S. and certainly runs through the left. At the time, uh, Christian Parenti, Doug Henwood, and Liza Featherstone wrote a really fantastic manifesto against what they called activistism. And they argued there that there was too much of a kind of knee-jerk tendency to say, ideas don't really matter, let's just get out in the streets. So I definitely was frustrated with that aspect of uh, movements on the left and a lack of a critical perspective at um, many of the ideas that were being defaulted to as core principles of the global justice movement, and I mean especially a kind of romanticization of the local and small is beautiful and often a kind of superficial criticism of corporate domination without really taking on capitalism. I mean, I think that capitalism as a term now is being used in political discourse on the left and in social movements really since Occupy, but before then, it was confined to more narrowly to radical circles, and that was really frustrating. So when CS and I had our lunch, I think we were sort of gnashing our teeth about the state of things, and and he proposed that we, we approach KPFA about airing a four-part series that challenged conventional wisdom on the left, which sounded like a fantastic idea, so we each divvied up the four. We each took two. Chris Welch very kindly let us play this series, I think, on on the Fridays across one month. And the response from listeners was really astounding. In fact, I should say that my first one was on globalization and how, how we could think about globalization. We had uh, Leo Panich on that. And I guess our frustrations about some of this anti-intellectual and not really very critical or radical ideas reigning at that time was shared by some listeners because there was such a deluge of comments and response. I think someone even sent money unsolicitedly that the then general manager and assistant general manager of the station of KPFA, Jim Bennett and Phil Asigeta, proposed bringing us onto the air as an ongoing program. And, and so CS actually left KLW to do that. And the program was launched on 3303 with an interview with the Marxist historian Robert Brenner was the first. 030303. Oh, you numerologist. Fortunately, it happened that way because I'm terrible at remembering dates. Otherwise, never would have remembered it. And of course, you know, it was right in the middle of this lead up to war and an intense uh, sense that the media was so necessary. I mean, of course, there was the whole scandal with Judith Miller in the New York Times and the really dreadful reporting that came out of the mainstream. I, I do have to note, though, that I learned later that Judith Miller got her start at 
the Pacifica station, WPFW in DC, but I think in the 1970s. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, so we, we came on the air right at that moment with a kind of mission to challenge conventional wisdom on the left, and we've been trying to do that ever since. Hugely successful. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing. So inadvertently, we on Against the Grain are part of a much longer history of radical programming that has ebbed and flowed, but has existed throughout the history of KPFA. Yeah, that's great, uh, Sasha. I remember my first visit to Berkeley in 1978, and I was staying with uh, friends who listened regularly to programs on on KPFA, and on the kitchen table was the was the folio, and and uh, this was a a newsletter that uh, I'm not sure quite when the last issue came out, but uh, there were moments in the week when everything stopped and they sat and would listen to, uh, sometimes it would be stuff in the background, rather the way that a lot of podcasts are listened to now while doing other things. But there was very definitely a sense of a, of a community. For example, um, everything had to stop when... Doug Dowd, who I think of in a way uh, that you you and uh, CS are continuators of various strands of um, commentary and dialogue on 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 Pacifica, and I've listened to some of the you know very old programs. Uh, Lewis Hill, one of the troika of the the founders, happened to be um, graced with a a wonderful baritone radio voice but he was also a, a poet and a, an existentialist a poet like uh, uh, Dick Moore so very strong series of um, uh, long time enduring programs uh, about uh, the arts um, theater drama music Political economy. Doug Dowd's program was the one that I had to sit and listen to, and Doug Dowd was uh, eventually went to live part of the year in Italy, but he would come back, and there would be people who knew when they would be tuning in to to Doug Dowd, and you never quite knew what you were getting. Same as now, I think I think of um, against the grain. I think of uh, behind the news. I mean, Doug Henwood's program is a is one of the the other beacons, and I see the see it in a in in you know as part of that that continuity. People come to the microphone. I mean, yesterday I heard a, a continuity voice, if that's the word, say something that would have made the founders wince. Um, I, I now wrote it down because it was so interesting and uh, slightly shocking, but it has to do with. I suppose the question of um, education and intergenerational continuity. Uh, th they said, and uh, part of the fund no fundraising now, so there's a certain kind of frenetic hysteria in the air. But the the line was, we're we're in the business of bringing you good information. That's almost the antithesis of what the founders had in mind. But they knew that there was. You know, it's not as if they're asking for some kind of uh, homogeneity. Quite the reverse. The radical dialogics um, were were important, and I should put it this way, quite generally, that they were very aware that the radicality is in the form, and anyone who was listening in those very early days, from 1949 uh, in, th in the early 50s, uh, it was quite clear that it was the the form as much as any content that was so striking. Uh, and the worry about democracy now, uh, for example, just to take an example, obviously there's, there's, there's so much to say and so much to comment on and so many conversations to be had. But to say on the air, you know, talk about X, whatever it is, you have 30 seconds. That's exactly uh, what... what um, Dick Moore and Lou Hill and Ellen McKinney were 
exercised about, uh, that it was very important uh, to, on the one hand, uh, uh, to have a, a polyphony of voices, um, even including, I mean, the, when people hear that Caspar Weinberger had a program on, on Pacifica, you know, it was important, they thought, uh, to let to trust the to, to to trust the audience in a certain way. Let let them judge. Let people condemn themselves out of their own mouths if necessary, right? Um, and your mode of interviewing the CS and and uh, and yourself, Sasha, is I think very congruent and congenial uh, to the to the original the original vision. I may, may I make one other observation which is that i think i think of the radio station and the 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 discipline of the of the hour which is as it's 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 it used to be looser it, it used to be that they were cushions so-called if they were boring themselves in the original program sometimes they would they would just stop and there'd be some silence or or they they'd bring some poetry in their backpack and read it until the next program began. Uh, I use the analogy of the typographic analogy that it was uh, justified left and ragged right. Now, uh, and Adorno notoriously told exiles arriving in New York that if they wanted to understand popular culture in the United States, listen to an hour of AM radio. Uh, it it's a very important question, the, the question of form and content, and what is it about uh, the, the program as it's now constituted within within a on a radio station compared to the the broad um, the podcast? I would say that um, it needs to be thought of in terms uh, uh, that were made interesting theoretically by by ben anderson the 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 anarchist uh historian at uh at at cornell who wrote this one of the most important um and crossover quote uh books of the late 20th century the mid late 20th century namely imagine communities where he he connected uh the nation state to print culture seems to me that that the presence of, of uh, KPFA uh, would be need to be understood in in terms that uh, Ben Anderson laid out about what constitutes a, a community albeit a virtual one Ian Bull is my guest he's co-author of retorts afflicted powers and a historian of techniques and the radio I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio, and today's program is somewhat unusual. We're actually talking about the program and its 20th anniversary. Well, you mentioned the form, Ian, of the program and the way that the founders of KPFA thought about form. And one thing that certainly is a benefit to us on Against the Grain is we have the privilege of the long form, which is really an endangered species, as everything goes to sound bites or ever shorter videos now, you know, 15 second videos. We have almost an hour for a conversation. And so there's not both the need to gallop through material, but also, you know, as Chomsky has argued, one of the ways that the mainstream media keeps out radical views is it just doesn't give enough time for them. Any kind of radical analysis, because it's structural, because it's systemic, can't be just thrown out in a soundbite. It needs longer to be stated. And by constraining time, it just precludes that. It just, you know, without any overt censorship, it keeps all that stuff out. And so I think it would be hard to do what we do under different sort of formal arrangements. And I feel just very grateful that we're able to do the program that we do this way, that you know nobody is breathing down our necks about the content we're putting on, and that we can give our guests 
the chance to really make the argument that they need to make. You can't marshal the evidence. You can't lay out an argument. Yeah, um, Noam actually went further uh, to your point, Sasha, <laughs> and said that if the uh, if the quote mainstream uh, uh, media were smarter, to use a rather right wing word, uh, they would have him on uh, more often. Uh, for with a soundbite, which would make him sound as if he was mad or from Mars. I mean, if you just have to assert, I think his example used to be, um, supposing I come on and I'm allowed to say, uh, to use the phrase, the invasion of South Vietnam by, by the United States, uh, unless you have time to expatiate on that, uh, that is going to sound like you're crazy, you know, because there's no time for it. And so that was his ironic comment. Um, about the extensive form, yeah. One of the things I wanted to get your view on is the larger place region out of which KPFA comes and against the grain was born. Obviously, CS and I brought to the program what we knew and what we were interested in. Um, you know, CS has been fantastic in his knowledge about philosophy as well as the arts, and that has greatly enriched the program. But I think we also, the two of us, and the program itself, have operated in a context that needs to be recognized. And in some ways, I don't think I was always aware of. In, in other words, Against the Grain actually is connected to lineages of the left on KPFA that we were not aware of. You mentioned Doug Dowd. One fascinating thing as an aside, I found out that his son was the model for the dude in the Coen Brothers film, The Big Lebowski. <laughs> That's true, yeah. So the the ideas of someone like Doug Dowd, but also um, Jim O'Connor, who was part of the Surplus Profits, which I believe was formed by the legendary public affairs director of KPFA, Elsa Knight Thompson. And Jim O'Connor was, of course, the maverick political economist, political ecologist based at UC Santa Cruz, who really helped rethink Marxist ideas around the environment and the relationship of capitalism to nature. And, you know, Jim O'Connor is just one example of a larger world that I would term as very broadly speaking, West Coast Marxism or West Coast radicalism. The late Mike Davis came out of that. And for me, what was very shaping was in the 1990s, it was a high point of much of this thinking at UC Berkeley in the geography department, people like Richard Walker and Michael Watts and Gillian Hart and others who weren't in the geography department, like Tim Clark in art history. And there is a tradition, a very broad tradition, I would say, of Marxism on the West Coast, which is much more broad and in many ways penetrating than elsewhere. Uh, I mean, not to sound too much of a booster, but a sort of deep engagement with ecology and nature. And of course, since much of this is coming out of geography, a real appreciation of space, understanding space within capitalism. And David Harvey, of course, is a looming figure in that. And taking political economy very seriously. I feel like there's been a renewal of political economy, which had a high watermark in the 1970s and then waned, especially as the left seemed more focused on corporate reform than anti-capitalism. But thanks to this tradition, so much of this was reworked and engaged with in the 90s and after, and then had direct influence on the resurgence of the left and radical left around the Occupy movement and around the global crisis of capitalism in 2008. All of these ideas were pulled from another person who's not on the West Coast, but who I would connect with this is Silvia Federici. Again, thinking not just about the point of production, but social reproduction and the role that nature, the unpaid labor of women, and of course, imperial domination, play in our understandings of capitalism. So this is the water that we swim in 
those of us who live or lived in the Bay Area. And that tremendously shaped the program. And I would also say connected it unwittingly to previous incarnations of the radical left at KPFA dating back to, you know, at least Kenneth Rexroth and his sort of hybrid, wide-ranging radicalism. Yeah, it's a, you paint a beautiful picture of of the the rich soil um, in which your own program is is flourishing. It's quite right. Um, I think the geography of this is is important in the in our terraqueous globe. Um, in the deeper history, uh, insularity um, was. If you were in the hinterland, you were far, you 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 were cut off far more than you were, than if you were on the shore, on the literal, in the in the uh, on the island. The, the 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 semantics of insularity have been turned inside out, maybe by the paving of the planet. Um, very important to to think of the difference between the kind of programming you 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 came to get here in KPFA compared with, say, WBAI on the other coast, which was a, uh, a station that landed in the lap, uh, but you know, more or less by accident. Eleanor McKinney got a call one day uh, from New York by a man who'd heard, and speaking of the radicality of the form, uh, heard KPFA and um, realized that that's what he wanted to be happening in, in New York and his own, he was, a, had made a rich man, uh, made money in business, and he owned a radio station, WBAI, which was, who's, which was broadcast from the Empire State Building, and um, you could say it was a, a, a fateful decision to to take to take up the the KPFA and that earprint. But the kind of programming that you get here on the West Coast is is importantly inflected. Inflection is probably too weak to describe the. What is um, I'm thinking of, as you say, the work of of Mike Davis, of those in the geography department uh, here at Berkeley, the importance of nature and uh, the organic world. Um, that that's hugely important. It goes back a long way. These filiations, how, how these connections uh, uh, are maintained or sometimes broken, but certainly the group of us um, who put together the collection called West of Eden, Communes and Utopia in Northern California, were responding to the fact that whatever that ferment was, however we describe the 60s, and his, history does not do very well when uh, understood merely by decade. But I remember asking Jeff Lustig, who was one of the graduate students who who were... Uh, lost their moorings when their own teachers were were thrown out of Berkeley, which uh, UC Berkeley, which was as often uh, thought of as a as a hotbed of radicalism. But um, it's a much more complicated story than that. I asked Jeff once, you know, if he could possibly write about what he felt were the conditions of possibility of what happened here in the 60s. And uh, one of the things he said was, well, like um, Ferlinghetti, um, Larry Ferling, later Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who said that KPFA was his university. He said we we had Kenneth Rexroth, um, we you know who for twenty years had a reviewed books uh, on on KPFA. And Rexroth is a hugely important figure for the Bay Area counterculture, and it was the Libertarian Circle that he. Uh, that he convened, um, to which Blue Hill pitched the idea of a radical radio station, which Rexroth was very skeptical about, but that didn't stop him in the end coming on the air very influentially for many, for many years. I think that uh, what we discovered in our researches for West of Eden, uh, that um, there's a hugely important um, small station up there in Philo, KZYX, whose reach is 
nothing like as large. What else could be as as KPFA, which has pumps out fifty nine thousand watts all over Northern California. But these these again are very important beacons and very important to kind of local communities. Although we shouldn't, of course, fetishize the local. That's you're quite quite right about that. The the uh, the geography of this indeed is 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 hugely important, and uh, that probably story still is there to be to be told. What what is it that attracts people to come uh, to the the Bay Area uh, or indeed to to LA? There's a kind of the mythos of of California, but there are many Californias, and if you think of the tremendous importance in the life of uh, of Bay Areans. I'm thinking now of not just KPFA and, and programs like yourself, but I'm thinking of the work of Susan Schwarzenberg and Marina McDougall uh, at the Exploratorium, of um, Rick and Megan Prellinger at the, at the library. There's, there's a kind of network of radical resources um, that uh, are connected and in, in ways that are would be hard to put into a sociogram, but it's very necessary to do it. And that's why I think this this conversation we're having now is it makes it clear that we should not forget and we 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 must try to archive this history for ourselves. Well and to underscore that point that that world, the world of the radical left as you say, is is not one to take for granted, but it has renewed itself over generations in the Bay Area. I think one of the reasons it's actually quite powerful. And of course, there are times that doesn't work, but I would say there is actually a fair amount of intergenerational exchange that happens within the left at a place like KPFA and in the larger activist world beyond it. And one thing I, I was thinking about recently was when I first started on Against the Grain, you know, as a, a young radical coming to radio for the first time, a guy called Ron Days contacted me. I didn't know who he was, some listener, and said, could he come talk to me about the voice? And so I thought I was humoring a listener. And so he came to the station and he was saying, you know, to open your voice, this was advice I'll never forget. He said, you need to imitate the thick, German accent of Herbert Marcuse, and so he was trying to lead me through this. And only later I realized that he was the founder of the Mime Troupe, the San Francisco Mime Troupe. But I would say that's one of the the ways, that's just an example of the ways that younger radicals in the Bay Area have and in the region have benefited from the experience and wisdom of people who've done it before them. Absolutely. Um, another thing that uh, I remember Jeff Lustig saying was um, when I asked him about the conditions of possibility, he said, well, he believed that the presence of two great commons on either side of the bay was, was crucial to what happened in what, what's called the 60s. And it was Ron Davis uh, uh, in San Francisco uh, who arranged to get arrested I think it was on Dolores Park. Uh, was it Dolores Park? Um, because at that time, um, uh, you had to get the permission of the city fathers and mothers before you could uh, speak in public in the park. Uh, so Davis's victory in the early days of the, the mine troop, and he was a he he was later, you know, it was a difficult. He 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 was an austere Brechtian, and lost uh, interest in a certain way in in the mime troupe when he said that the audience was looking more interesting than the people on the stage uh, in the late late 60s. But Davis Davis reminds us that uh, the inextricability of of, uh, nature and culture, so that performance in the park which, and I think Lustig is right, it was tremendously important, that it's worth defending. And Mike Davis uh, also defends the, the presence of the university, however much privatized uh, 
and uh, you know falls short of what we would hope that a public education might offer now uh, that it's worth defending uh, for that uh, for that reason well even with a long form Ian I'm afraid we're out of time oh no <laughs> this has been an unusual program commemorating against the grains 20th anniversary against the grain came onto the airwaves on 3303 uh, just two and a half weeks before the US invaded Iraq and remarkably has existed for the subsequent two decades. I'm Sasha Lilly. I've been speaking with Ian Ball, a historian of radio, about the world into which Against the Grain was born and the broader world of KPFA and the radical left on the West Coast. Ian, thank you so much for joining me. Entirely my pleasure. Thank you, Sasha. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>